always baffled me is because we serve a God who is in control, but yet he has ordained his will to be uh, brought about in the earth through his people's prayers. So prayer is important even though God is in control. And prayer is something that Man, have you ever just set out to pray and you really set out to pray? And as you're praying, um, it feels like an hour has passed. And then you look at the clock and it's been like five minutes. Have you ever done that? And then there's been some seasons in my life where I've thought it's five minutes and it's actually been an hour. It's that prayer is such a, such a strange thing, but, but it's so important. But what's more important than, than prayer is to know the God to which you're praying. Because if I'm praying, but I'm not praying according to the heart and will of God, then just because I put in Jesus' name on the end of it doesn't mean it's going to come to pass. Like we treat... Um, putting in Jesus' name on the end of prayers as if some magical seal that just took those words that I prayed and then sealed it and made it into a reality that's going to come to pass. And sometimes we could be putting in Jesus' name on stuff that's not in Jesus' name at all. Jesus reveals this to us in the scriptures, all, all throughout the scriptures, but, but especially in Matthew chapter 7. There's a group of people standing before Jesus in Judgment Day, and they say, we've done miracles, we've prophesied in your name, we've cast out devils, we've did some awesome, mighty works. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, so in other words, there was these things that were happening, th activity and actions that was going on, even done in Jesus' name. But yet, Jesus' heart and the relationship of God wasn't in the prayer. And so even though they were seeing these results even, there wasn't necessarily a relationship there. That Jesus would be more concerned with us knowing his heart and having a relationship with him and out of that place praying than he would be us reducing him to a magician where we know the magical spells to pray and then place his name on them. See, that's what makes Christianity different. What makes Christianity different is it's not magical. It's not sorcery. It is a relationship with the true and living God. And it's from that place that empowers and motivates every area of my life. Uh, John chapter 14, starting in verse 8. And, and Philip says, Philip's really not really like a highlight in the Bible. He's in the book of John the most. But he asked this question. So matter-of-factly that it's, it's just it's kind of comical to me, but, but, but look what Jesus is breaking down here. John chapter 14, verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be content. <laughs> Small ask there, right? Uh, Lord, show us God and we'll be content. 
But watch what Jesus does here, verse 9. Jesus replied, have I been with you for so long and you have not known me, Philip? The person who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father residing in me performs his miraculous deeds. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not believe me, believe because of the miraculous deeds themselves. I tell you the solemn truth, the person who believes in me will perform the miraculous deeds that I am doing. And will perform greater deeds or greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Now get these last two verses in your heart. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus seems to be content here where Philip is saying, I want to see the Father. I want to see God. And Jesus scolds Philip because he's basically saying, if you can't see God in me, then you can't see God at all. In other words, Jesus is the meeting place with God. That what God wants to display himself as, is he doesn't want to just come out and reveal himself in some kind of spiritual way, is that he wants to reveal himself inside of men so that men would be the reflection of God himself and that people would have a connection to God from someone who has a connection with God. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm connected to the Father so you can be connected to God if you're connected to me. Uh, in, in John 14, 6, he says this, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. It's like Jesus is setting himself up and saying that in me you will meet God. And what he wants to do is, if you notice here, what he makes this, this kind of a connection here is he says, God is connected to me, and I'm connected to God, and I am God, and now I want to connect to you so that you connect to me, and I connect you to the Father, and through this connection, people are going to see God through the life of his people is that God is so into relationship, he would rather not just pop up in front of you, he would rather have an encounter with a man or a woman and them display the works of God. That we should be walking in such a way with God when people say, I don't believe in God, we could say, look at my life. Who loves you the way I do? Jesus doesn't say, look at these. He says, greater works you're going to do. He puts the evidence in a people that would display the invisible God into the earth. 
And that is what he's calling us into. But if we don't know the Father heart of God, we won't display the right works. We won't have the right message. And we can pray in Jesus' name till we're blue in the face. But we won't know his will and character enough to pray things that he wants to answer in the earth. Jesus emphasized that it's not what you pray, but it's the spirit in which you pray that matters. And if we don't know the character and nature of God, how in the world are we going to know how to pray? You ever been so confused you didn't know what to pray? It's like you just feel divided. You feel your heart is divided. I was taking Kennedy to school and uh, when I was taking her to school, I was just filling her with purpose. And I was like, just speaking into her, speaking life over her. And I'm just like, I'm like, Kennedy, man, we're going to school today. Uh, we just need to reflect God into the earth today. Like, you're, you, God's got big plans for you. He's got awesome things. You're going to fulfill great things for him. And he loves you so much. Like, he's crazy about you. Like, there's nothing he won't do for you. And I'm just like pouring into her heart and just telling her how big the dreams and plans for God of God is in her and for her and as I'm pouring into her she stops and she says dad she says God has big plans for me but does he have big plans for other people see immediately we went from putting uh, we went from praying prayers to now we've got to address the character of God. How does God feel about other people? So as she was receiving the download of the big dreams and the big plans, now she's asking, what does God think about other people? And she's like, does God have kind of big plans for me? This is what she said. And then for other people, still God plans but little plans? And I'm like, no, baby, anybody that draws near to God, he has big plans for their life. See, we addressed a character issue there. Because it's one thing to say the things, it's another thing to know to the God in which we're praying. See, if we don't know the heart and the character and nature of God, how will we pray concerning others different than us? How will we pray with those that are lost? What will we pray when we're dealing with people that are bad in our opinion? See, we won't know how to pray or we'll pray the wrong prayers. See, prayer is praying out of or from the heart of God. This is what prayer is. Prayer is speaking back to God what he has spoken into us. What we are doing when we pray is we are praying based upon what God has done for us. We're praying that God would do that for other people. Amen. That we are, we're not unique in the fact that what God did in us, that was just a picture of what he wants to do in everyone. And what God wants to do in everyone is what he, what he did in us. So we pray and live out of this place of what God has done into our hearts. But if I think it was just for me, I will sit on it. I will hide my gifts. I'll hide my life. I'll hide my testimony. And I will just not share it with anybody. 
and it keeps me in a bondage. And if I do that for too long, I will begin to think that I'm superior than everybody else. And I'll quit extending the same grace that was extended to me. And my heart will grow cold and I'll begin to pray things that are wrong prayers. I'll begin to declare things with good intentions, but declare things that are not of the right spirit of God. Uh, I remember Kennedy was, uh, we were getting ready for bed. And so I have a rule that when I read her bedtime stories, we have to read some kind of devotional Bible story something first before we read Dr. Seuss and the other stuff. One time I came in there and I just got, um, you ever been just so tired that you threw your own rules out the window? And she's like, Dad, would you read with me? I'm like, oh, sure. So I just grabbed green eggs and ham. She says, Dad, you've got to read the Bible first. Oh, yes, I was testing you. Very good, my people. See, she was speaking back to me a principle that her father had put in her heart. And that's what prayer is. It's speaking back to God the things that he has spoken into our heart. And this is what God wants to do. See, when we're confident in the character and nature of God, we will pray bold prayers, not lesser prayers. We will also pray the right prayers. I love in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. And the father is kind of the main character here, but within that, there's two different sons and two different dynamics. One of the sons says, uh, just give me my inheritance. I don't want to live in the father's house. I just want to go. Just give me my stuff. Let's go. Basically, he's saying, I don't want to wait till you die. I just want my inheritance now. I want you out of my life. And so he takes that inheritance and he goes off. And the Bible says that he spends it on reckless living. And as he spends all his money, he finds himself, his friends leave, everybody goes, and here he is, and he's in the middle of this feeding pigs, and, he, and, and if you were Jewish in this mindset, like pigs are like dirty, disgusting, like it was considered like in some circles, like if you touched these pigs or even had anything to do with them, you would be perpetually unclean and you could never come back home, you could never be clean again. And so here he is, and he's jealous of what the pigs are eating. Right? Jealous of what the pigs are eating. And so he says from that place, man, if I go home to my dad, at least I can be a servant. And the servants do better than what I'm doing right here. So he begins to prepare a speech in his mind. And what I've found is, is those that are ashamed of their past will create a servant mentality because they have an inferiority complex. And the son, the first son, is trying to work his way in by thinking he can serve and he can move the father's heart if he just comes back as a servant. It looks like repentance and it looks holy, but it's really not. Because he's trying to actually control the father based upon his words and saying what he thinks of himself. Instead of allowing the father to say who he actually is and what he's actually made of and who he's actually, what his DNA is. So the father shows up and here it goes. He's rehearsed it the whole way. So the father does something really crazy is that he wraps his legs up and it was so embarrassing to show your legs in that day. 
So he's showing his legs. He's got his legs. He's all wrapped up and girded up. And so he's running after the son when he sees him top the hill. And when he tops the hill, he falls on his neck and starts weeping on his son's neck. And then the son starts to go in on his servant speech that he rehearsed. It's like he can't receive love until he uh, measures up in his own mind. He's just feeling so inferior because of his past. And so he says, hey, Dad, I know I messed up. I'm content to be a servant. And the father never engages his words. He never says, oh, well, I appreciate you doing that because that shows you really are repenting. And uh, so, yeah, okay, I guess I'll, you can come back. He doesn't even engage his words. He looks at his fellow servants and says, get the robe, get the fatted calf, get the ring, get the shoes. My son is coming with me back into the city, fully redeemed and walking in the identity of who he was when he left. So the father puts his best robe on him, puts his ring on him, puts his shoes on him, and says, he's not coming back as a servant, he's coming back as a son. And letting everybody in the community know, like, this is who, he's coming back with me. Now the other son, finds, here's, there's a party going on. What's this party all about? He's upset because the father has shown grace to this son that has not been faithful. And he can't even enjoy the party because he feels like that son isn't worthy enough to throw a party for. So the father goes after the other son who had been in the house and, and followed the rules and done the right thing. And he goes after him and says, what's going on? He says, well, that, that son of yours, he doesn't say my brother. He doesn't say my brother. He says, that son of yours has did all this crazy stuff, and now you're welcoming, welcoming him back in. And I just can't, I can't even understand why you would do that. See, see, one son had an inferiority complex. The other son had a superiority complex. And that's what happens when we don't understand the Father heart of God. We get servant-minded, and we think that we can serve God until he loves us, or we think because we are serving God, he likes us better than he likes other people. And so the Father heart of God will not be manipulated by a servant mindset and make him love us any more or any less based upon our service and based upon our ability to serve him is that God's heart is for you to be a son or a daughter of him. And when you walk in that position and when you walk in that place, you have an understanding of the heart of God. And you're not like the elder son that doesn't like it when other sons come home. You understand the father's heart and you say, man, I celebrate when other sons come home and other daughters come home. And when you've got the father's heart because you're in the place of sonship, you're not trying to earn your way back into the father's house. You're receiving the love from God basically just because God is love and he loves you that much. That you can't manipulate God with your service to make him love you any more or any less. And that's why our service is so superficial and it doesn't lead people to the Father. Because it's based on a love that we're unsure of because we're still trying to earn it. 
So people look in and say, man, I'm already unsure that I'm loved. Why would I want to be more unsure the way you're unsure? So we've got to come to an understanding of the Father heart of God. You can't use servanthood as a means to manipulate the Father. You know what the Father wanted them to do? Just be who they were. Sons. Come into the identity of sons. And this is what the devil always wants us to do. The devil wants us to labor for and work for what we already are. He wants you to work for what you already are. This is what he did to Adam and Eve. Did the same thing to them. Oh, don't eat of this tree because God wants you to. He's worried you're going to be like him. They were already made in the likeness and image of God. He said, you're going to have to work for this thing that you already are. And when we fall for that trap, we find ourselves in positions where we're always trying to earn for something that we already are. You're already loved by God. You're already loved by God. Take a deep breath. Now just receive it and allow him by his grace to deal with those issues that you're worried about. Because he'll be there with you the whole way and he'll help you deal with them. But you have to receive the reality of what you already are. You are a son and a daughter of God. You've, you've, if you've given your life to Jesus, you're in there. You're in there. If you've surrendered to Jesus, you're in there. How weird would it be for my daughter to be walking around in my house saying, Dad, am I still your daughter? Hey, Dad, can I go to the fridge and get something to eat? Hey, Dad, can I use the bathroom? Hey, Dad, can I go in my room now? See, it would just reveal that she really didn't trust my heart, that what I had was hers. And what she has is mine. God loves you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Quit fighting it. Another story my dad tells, it was a guy he worked with. Him and his wife were fighting. And his wife threw her suitcase up on the bed, starts packing it. So the husband grabbed his suitcase and threw it up on the bed. He starts packing it. She said, where are you going? He said, I don't know, wherever you're going. Quit fighting the love of God. <laughs> it's too good. Paul says that he, he, he was trying to understand what was the height, the depth, and the breadth, and the width, and the length of this unfathomable love of God. That the love of God is not trying to pull us into the reality to figure it out. That the love of God is pulling us into the mystery of how could anybody love me that much. And to me be so enamored in that place of mystery that I live out of that place and touch everybody else with that same amount of love. However imperfectly that looks. 
Is my life an attempt to earn sonship? If so, I can never communicate the Father or show others what it's like to be a son. Because the moment I attempt to be something, I'll never be that thing. I'm always attempting. But the moment I receive that I am, I am. And from that place, I communicate sonship. If I'm always attempting, I'm always almost there or always failing. And I live with a nagging sense of guilt of never measuring up. And that becomes what I reflect into the world. A God that can't fully forgive me or love me. And the world looks and says, I'm in the same boat. I don't want none of that. Just like Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What's he saying? That God wants to come so close to men that men say, wow, God's got to be in that guy. God's got to be in that lady. Jesus says, let your light so shine that men will see your good works and give glory to God. I think many times our good works are so humanized that people just give glory to us. Man, you're a good old boy. Well, it's God, man. When Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works. And so that's got to be supernatural. Because who can walk like that? Who can love like that? I know this is heavy, but I got it first, so. <sighs> All right, so let's check out some more scriptures. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. This is a really unique encounter. It's really cool. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Now, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set out resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Verse 52, he sent his messengers on ahead of him. As they went along, they entered a Samaritan village to make things ready in advance for him. But the villagers refused to welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man came to save men's life, not destroy them. And then they went on to another village. Now, it's quick to see here that, that these Samaritan village, that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. But where would they get this idea of calling down fire from heaven? Well, 2 Kings chapter 1, this is what Elijah does. He calls down fire from heaven on some Samaritans, a captain in their armies of 50. So these guys are going back through Sunday school. Hmm. 
okay, here's Samaritans. They're rejecting us. They get their bracelet out. What would Elijah do? Let's call down fire from heaven. Yeah, Jesus is going to be so impressed with this answer because we know our scriptures. Jesus. <clears throat> Should we call down fire on those Samaritans right now? And Jesus says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. Have you walked with me this long and you're still angry? And you still want to cast judgment? This is what you're getting from watching my life? That you want to call fire down from heaven that people re reject us? You've given up on mercy and you'd rather see judgment because you think you're superior? I'm afraid we pray like this with people we don't agree with. You can't love somebody different than you? Then you're sure not going to love your enemies the way Jesus commanded. The moment I love my enemy, they stop becoming my enemy. Jesus, what restraint? He was God of the universe. If anybody had a right to go into the Samaritan village and take a rest before he went to Jerusalem, it would be Jesus. But Jesus surrenders to the will of those men and their belief that they own that city and own those places. And he says, come on, let's just keep going to Jerusalem. See, some of us can't make it on our destination because we're so concerned with those who attack us along the way. That it stops us and then we end up engaging in fights that were never ours to fight. When God's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, where are you going? You can stay here and do your fire call down from heaven thing if you want. But I'm going on into Jerusalem because this is where God has me to go. That you don't have to get into every entanglement that comes your way. Especially if you're trying to get to Jerusalem. Because if you're going to the cross, then you're going with Jesus. If you're going to the flesh, you're going somewhere else. This is always happening is where Jesus is trying to reveal his heart so that they know how to pray. Jesus would rather them said, God, forgive them of their unbelief and their hard-heartedness. And God opened the eyes of those Samaritans. But do you know what Jesus did? He really actually did send fire on the Samaritans. Because there was an evangelist that went down to Samaria and preached the gospel. They got saved and he called James and John, Peter and John, to come lay hands on them so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is reported as tongues of fire. 
So Jesus did send fire on the Samaritans, but not the way that they were thinking he was going to send the fire on the Samaritans. See, God wants to send the fire of judgment, but he wants to send the fire of judgment on showcasing that Jesus is the judgment of God and that the Spirit of God can fall on people in places and they can be redeemed and saved and brought into the fold and be sons and daughters of God. Jesus is always doing this. And the disciples are just like us. They think they're impressing Jesus with their smart answers. How many times should, you for, should I forgive my brother? <laughs> I know the number of God is seven. Seven times Jesus, the number of completion. <laughs> Jesus said, no, you little cat fisherman. 70 times 7. He's like taking his shoes off. Says their net were, was busting at 150 fish. They never had to count that high. See, Jesus is getting them outside of themselves where they can see the character and nature of God. So they can know how to pray. So they won't be praying prayers and slapping Jesus' name on it that don't have the spirit and the connection to Jesus himself. See, if we don't know the spirit in which we are to pray, how in the world will we pray the right prayers? I love this deal. And when, when God brings us into encounter, it's always to bring us into a, a bolder declaration of who he is. Moses in Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf thing, right? The people of God get led out. The, the instructions given to Moses, and he's got the Ten Commandments. And then he hears this cry, and he's like, man, what's going on? Is there war in the camp? He's like, no, it's not war. It's a worship service. And they go down, and the people of God are worshiping a golden cow. They've just been brought out of bondage and like they saw the Red Sea split and like swallow an army of the mightiest nation that was there and they're worshiping a cow and Moses comes down and he's so angry that he's got these ten commandments and he's just I can't remember if he does he throw them he breaks them right he throws them down and breaks them. Some rabbis think he was so discouraged when he saw the people that he lost the strength to hold them. And they broke. And so God says in chapter 33, all right, I'm giving you the land. I'm sending an angel out in front of you because if I go with you, I'll end up killing you. <laughs> should read your Bible. It's really strange and cool. No, I'm not going with you. Moses, you've got it. You've got the blessings. You've got everything else. Go on. I'll kill you if I go with you. I'm not going. And Moses doubles down and says, God, if you don't go, I'm not going. If we go into the land and your presence isn't with us, they're going to think we did it on our own and you're not going to get the glory for it. And then God says, okay, I'll go with you. 
And Moses says the craziest thing. I would have been like, all right, good, he's back on our side. Let's just leave him alone. Let's just go on. And Moses says, show me your glory. (laughs) Show me more. Because you've shown me mercy here. That means I must can take a step further in what it is to see you. See, mercy is an invitation to go deeper, not to go backwards. And some of us receive mercy and say, okay, well, I got out of that jam. I'm going to run away and do my thing. When that invitation of mercy was to say, this is a token of goodness. Would you take another step into me? Would you take another step? Would you take another step? Would you take another step until you get so lost in me that I'm in the Father and you are in me and I'm in you? And we're all in unity together. And from this place, you'll pray and move and have your being. Show me your glory. So he hides him in the cleft of a rock. And check this out, Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and there, stood with him there and proclaimed the Lord by name. Wow. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is the Lord. Speak of this to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious. God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal covenant love and faithfulness. Keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving uh, iniquity and the transgression and sin. But he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of fathers, dealing with the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We typically get lost in that third and fourth generation, but what God is showing is he's juxtaposing how big his grace is compared to how big his judgment is. How big his grace is compared to how big his justice is. So he's saying that I will bless people for thousands of generations and I won't be mad with them forever. That he's revealing his name that he had already revealed to Moses, right? Yahweh. The I am that I am. So he reveals to him Yahweh, but we can only know what the name means as we walk it out in relationship with him. So as Moses is walking out this relationship, God begins to reveal him more and more of his name. That God is compassionate. That he's slow to anger. That he is for you. That he will bless you. He wants to, his heart is to bless you for a thousand generations. Not to curse you for thousands of generations. That this is the character and the nature of God. This is the place that we pray from. That this is the name in which we pray. You know what Jesus' name means? God is salvation. Jesus means God is salvation. So think about this prayer. God, kill them in the name of the God of salvation. God, destroy them in the name of God, who is salvation. That the name has to match the character of the prayer and the spirit of the prayer. And this is the place that Jesus is calling us into. We're coming in for the landing. Don't get antsy on me. 
Genesis chapter 18. And, and the Sodom and Gomorrah thing, that's, I think, the thing that people always appeal to, right? Like, like I've heard people say, if God doesn't judge them, then he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Say, God ain't got to apologize for nothing. God is God, and he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy, and he shows compassion on whom he shows compassion. Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Then when the men got up to leave, they looked out over Sodom. Verse 17, the Lord said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Wow. Man, I want to be walking with God like that, where he says, man, I better tell, have I told Matt what I'm going to do in the city of Hot Springs? I need to tell him. He says, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Verse 18, after all, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth may receive blessing through him. I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then the Lord will give to Abraham what he promised him. So the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so blatant that I must go down and see if they are as wicked as the outcry suggests. If not, I want to know. The two men turned and headed toward Sodom, but Abraham was standing before the Lord. Abraham approached and said, will you really sweep away the godly along with the wicked? What if there are 50 godly people in the city? Will you really wipe it out and not spare the place for the sake of 50 godly people who are in it? And some people say that this was like a city of like maybe like 450,000. Some even estimate bigger. Like this would have been like a huge city. Um, see what the ratio would be for 50 out of. Who's some math people? Can you? Are you? I know. Math people. Let's just estimate here, 450,000, that's a conservative estimate of the size of that city. What would be the percentage of 50 righteous people? An eighth? One tenth. 450,000 and 50 people. Get your phones out. Somebody hook it up. And then do 10 people. What would be the percentage of that? I just want to show you what God, what he's asking here. So the Lord replied, If I find in the city of Sodom 50 godly people, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Did anybody find that answer? Working on it. Okay. What is it? Point oh 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 one. God, will you not destroy this city for point oh 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 one percent of the population if they're godly? Is that ten? What's ten percent? What's ten people? I just want you to get a picture of like what he's asking. This is what you got? Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to read this. Sorry. 
point O, 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 repeating to. God, in this city of 450,000 people, would you spare it if there's point O, 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 two, 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 righteous? God says, yeah. If there's point zero, 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 two, 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 I won't destroy the city. Can't tell me God's not merciful. He is so merciful. He is so good. So Abraham whittles him down. He's probably thinking, surely there's point zero 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 two 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 two. And I got to thinking, what if he went down to five? Would that have been the threshold of God's mercy? And then what if he would have got to one? Would that have been the threshold of God's mercy? Or what if he would have said, I know there's not anybody righteous, God. <laughs> but I know your heart, and I know you called me out of my darkness. So would you give them a little more time so that they might repent and come into relationship with you? See, I think we think we're more merciful than God. And that's what Abraham thought. He's like, God, uh, how about for 50? 40? 30? 20? Oh, God, if I beseech you just one more time. 10? See, we think we're more merciful than God. We're not more merciful than God. God is abounding with mercy, which means he's overflowing with mercy and goodness. Do our prayers look like Abraham or do our prayers look like James and John? Call down fire. Oh God, if there's 10 righteous in America, Would you preserve us and send revival to this land? And if we're really splitting hairs, there's none righteous, no, not one, except for Jesus. Last scripture, I promise. Acts chapter 26, verse 29. Paul's standing before kings and and being tried for the gospel. He hasn't done anything wrong. Nothing against the law. Here he is in chains giving a defense because of a charge from someone else, a group of people. And he's standing before kings giving an account. And he starts preaching the gospel while wearing chains. <laughs> it makes you wonder who was really free there. The one who could love in chains or the ones who are sitting on thrones? So he's sitting there in chains and he just starts preaching the gospel. And this is how Paul replies because one of the kings says, 
while he's giving his defense, he realizes he's trying to talk him into being a Christian. <laughs> it's like, this is your opportunity to grovel for your life and you're preaching the gospel to me? Looks a lot like Jesus. And he says, would you try to persuade me to be a Christian? This quick? Look at Paul's response. Paul replied, Acts 26, verse 29. Paul replied, I pray to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but all those who are listening to me today could become such as I am, except for these chains. Wow. Like he wanted them to become Christians and find the goodness and the mercy of God, but he didn't want to transfer his chains onto them when they were the ones that actually needed the chains. They were the ones that deserved the chains, but Paul's just passing on the gospel. And see, when we're in chains, the temptation is, is to pass our chains onto other people so that they know how enchained we feel. But Paul is so free that he said, I'm content to wear the chains. I just want you to hear the message and experience the goodness and the glory of God. See, Paul was so mercy-driven that he wasn't searching for justice. He was searching for mercy. He was saying, mercy. God, show him Mercy. That the heart of Jesus is mercy. His name is Yeshua, the God of salvation. He like put in his name what he wants to do. Is he wants to swoop in and save. Would you pray with me, Lord, God? God, we ask for mercy. We ask for mercy for those who have betrayed and hurt us, God. God, like Paul, we say, I don't want to transfer my chains, but I want you to know the mercy of God and the relationship with God, if we were to be honest, none of us here would be alive if it was about who's worthy and who's not. That every breath is a grace from God. That every heartbeat is a grace from God. God, you've not called us to just be right called us to be merciful you've called us to be compassionate slow to anger quick to listen abounding in steadfast covenant keeping love so Lord would you help us God it's going to take great grace for us to do it but you're abounding with grace as well.
Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So God, we ask for the abounding grace that unplugs us from sin and helps us to walk upright and holy before you, God. Lord, let us be a people in a church of mercy. Extending the blessing for a thousand generations. God, forgive us of our inferiority complexes. Of not believing that you really love us. And God, forgive us of our superiority complexes, thinking that we're better than everyone. God, would you do a deep work in our hearts? Would you do a deep work in our hearts? Would you stand to your feet all over this place?